Welcome to the Eco Interviews, where we're amplifying the voices of eco-warriors from across the world and sharing stories of change. I'm your host, Fiona Martin. This week, we're interviewing Chris Jones. Okay, well, hi, Chris. Welcome to the Eco Interviews. I'm excited to have you with us today. Well, um, thanks for asking me on here, Fiona. <laughs> so, um, Chris Jones is a an, uh, farmer. He is the uh, he started the Cornwall Cornwall Beaver Project in 2014, and he um, he was born in Cornwall and moved to his current farm in the 60s. He is the middle child of seven and had a great childhood growing up outdoors. He worked in Central Africa from 1978 to 1981 and then returned to the UK and studied forestry at Bangor. After working on for a forestry contracting company from 1987 to 1990, he went back to farm in 1990 when his father died and he's been running the farm ever since. His farm went organic in 2003 and then to pasture only farming in 2009. The farm has evolved to include carbon auditing, building soil carbon stocks and practicing regenerative agriculture. And then from there, he's also been involved in the Beaver Project and he has four children and one grandchild. So Chris, I'm really excited to speak to you you sound like you've been on the farm outdoors for um, much of your life, and this has evolved into organic farming, regenerative agriculture, um, rebuilding the beaver stock in the UK. So give us a little bit of an idea. Did, were you always interested in nature? Did you always consider yourself an environmentalist, or is this something that's happened later in life? Um, no, um, I think the whole family has always been very interested in uh, nature and wildlife and um, and living in the outdoors. Um, my father um, was also very interested always in everything that was going on with uh, with uh, with nature here. Um, and uh, you know, he'd been a farmer most of his life, and his father before that, and so on. So we we, we I think. I think historically, uh, as, as a grant, we've, we've had a, a great appreciation of living in the countryside and, and, and what else is in there besides us. Fantastic. And um, you've been, you're a little bit older than, say, myself and Mel Smith, who put us in touch. And so we, I feel like we're maybe the newer generation that are starting to get into this, maybe the city slickers that have just sort of awoken to nature. Um, and as someone who has always been aware of environmental impact and the flow of nature. Um, how, I guess, what, would, what was it like before this sort of climate crisis chats that we're having now in the public? Well, um, I, I first became aware of global warming, if you like, in 1982. Mm -hmm. um, and I uh, uh, I guess I can clearly uh, remember before that time, um, and I suppose in in um, in many respects I considered our impact on uh, the environment on 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 the the wildlife um, that surrounds us. I guess I thought our, our impact on that were very much related to. Um, uh, human population pressure uh, and you know industrial practice and that kind of thing. I hadn't I hadn't really you know until 1982 I had no idea that, that, that climate change per se was out there and indeed what a big impact that was going to have and how quickly. Um, so I, I guess in a way I, I was I was always thinking you know we're not doing things very well uh, and and things are becoming extinct around us and so on and, and we should be seeking to to change that okay interesting you, you know silent spring was published when 1962 mm -hmm. i think something like that and um uh, my older brothers they were um aware of that um really from just about the time of publication and uh, this is the sort of thing we talk about uh, at home uh, sometimes is how um, things that might have seemed very distant were actually really important. Mm 
and that we should begin to take notice of them. Excellent. And so this sort of mindset and being aware uh, as you were in all the way back to the 80s and before, is this what led you to transition your farm to organic and then regenerative agriculture? Or was there some other catalyst? Well, um, uh, it, it's a kind of a, a roundabout route, really. Um, I was uh, uh, working in forestry up until 1990 when my father died. Um, and I went into uh, the farm and I, I um, changed a few things that he was doing maybe and, and uh, uh, had more cattle rather than fewer and uh, also um, maybe we farmed a little bit more intensively and uh, we, without too much money, um, I took an outside job as well and then um, that, and they, that gave me the kind of headspace to to increase our cattle numbers quite quickly until we had, yeah, we were fully stocked by uh, 1994, I guess, and um, the farm was actually um, uh, more or less profitable by then. And then um, in 1996, there was uh, an announcement uh, about um, mad cow disease. Um, uh, which is a, a degenerative uh, disease of the brain that um, uh, we've managed to get a lot of it in the, the cattle herd, not in our own herd, but um, across the nation. And uh, we we wondered um, if this was going to be good for us or not, but it very, very quickly became obvious it would not be good for us and, and that uh, basically all, 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 all cattle farming became... Uh, very unprofitable very very quickly uh, almost overnight mm -hmm. and so I had to get a, a, a real job um, and I uh, managed to find a, a job working in the oil field which meant I was away from home for three weeks or four weeks and then back home for three, three or four weeks um, and uh, so my wife and young family were at home and we uh, needed to reduce the amount of workload that she had because of young children and um, we sold uh, a lot of the cattle and we began to be a lot less intensive uh, and tried to find out ways we could do things uh, both more cheaply, if you like, but also um, requiring less input. So uh, we started putting, adding a lot more clover and this kind of thing to our grassland. And after three or four years of this, it became obvious that actually we were just about farming organically, so why didn't we do the whole thing and become registered? And uh, and we just did. So we, we almost fell into organic farming, I suppose. But um, I've been um, um, totally uh, convinced since then that it's the way we should go. And I don't mean just me, I mean uh, uh, globally, because um, we have seen some quite interesting changes in terms of wildlife and... Uh, um, kind of how clean the environment is. Mm -hmm. that's, that's very so interesting. It's exciting. <laughs> it is exciting, yeah. So, go, so going organic um, in 2003, and then that seems to have transitioned to some other uh, aspects on the farm that you've mentioned, like the carbon auditing and the soil building. Yeah, soil uh, um, uh, and, um, yeah no, absolutely. It, it became apparent to me very, very quickly that there was uh, being organic and then there was um, uh, a stage further, kind of beyond organic, um, which really, um, it involved uh, understanding a lot more about our animals. It, it, it was important to understand um, at that time uh, in the, uh, say, 2008, um, that climate change was a much, much bigger uh, and closer danger than, um, than we had perhaps hitherto thought. Um, there was also the question of peak oil uh, around then, which has faded somewhat, but it's still out there. Um, uh, and I had to uh, really try and work out in my head what, what uh, direction we should be going in. And it just so happened that we had a carbon audit in 2008 and our little farm 
we found that we had a, a, a carbon um, emission, uh, a net carbon emission of about 300 tons annually from what we were doing. And uh, I, I had to question that, you know, because we're just a little farm. We, 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 we just had a few cows. We just grew a little bit of cereals. We didn't do, uh, we weren't doing anything uh, heavy duty at all. So how could we have this terrible, terrible carbon footprint? And uh, as I read into it, it became obvious that cultivation is uh, or was the major cause of our um, emissions. We cultivated uh, every year about 20% of our land uh, to grow uh, a cereal for our cattle to eat in the winter and uh, for straw to bed them on in the winter. And once we, once we realized that there was this uh, carbon cost of doing that and we stopped doing it, and just grew entirely pasture, the whole equation changed. And instead of uh, emitting 300 tons, we were now having a net uh, change of 650 tons because we were now having a net, a net uh, gain of 350 tons of carbon in our soil and uh, other vegetation. So um, it struck me that in our in our place where we have quite high rainfall, um, where we can't harvest reliably, um, uh, and you know if if it is if it is wet and you have to harvest, then you've got to dry your grain and all this kind of thing, and this is all taking uh, more energy, more carbon emissions to do. So. Uh, and the other thing is we discovered was that um, uh, ruminants are not designed to consume and digest starch, mm -hmm. carbs. They don't want it. It's not good for them. Uh, and it's not good for the produce that you get from them either. And so um, changing, uh, stopping growing any cereal, cereals at all, was actually, uh, it was like stopping hitting my head on the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, everything suddenly became a lot clearer and life became a lot better. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, a, there's a lot to it. Um, there, there is a lot to it, but um, it really, it really uh, uh, opened my eyes, I think, to, to how we could do things better, both for ourselves and for our animals, and indeed for the produce that we eventually sold. So... Um, I was uh, very lucky because at just about the same time there was a, um, uh, a, a group of farmers from all sides of the country, a very small group, initially only about 20 or so, uh, were getting together and reaching more or less the same conclusion and we said we should have an association and we started up an association in 2010 and um, it's now got about 500 members and it's growing steadily. And hopefully we will uh, eventually uh, all have people growing their cattle and sheep like this because there's no there's no requirement for animals to eat cereals at all. And if you can do if you can grow meat and save carbon at the same time, then this is surely something that we should be really celebrating. Yes, it sounds very interesting. Um, I know that regenerative agriculture is something that I'm personally interested in. I'm learning more. I'm going to start a regenerative gardening class this month because I don't have a farm. Yeah. We have our back garden, but I'm excited about that. But I mean, can, can you help talk, um, talk to us about regenerative agriculture? And if I'm using the wrong term for your farm, then please correct me. Um, it sounds like no. your, your main product is um, is beef. Is that correct? And then do you? So, uh, uh, current, currently, it's milk. Oh, okay. uh, currently, it's, it's milk. We have a, we have a little dairy herd here, which my nephew looks after. Um, okay. uh, and um, I I think regenerative is is a is a really good term. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I don't know what the or if there is a, a, a dictionary definition of. Regenerative, but the way I see it is that um, essentially, if you take your 
they take your land, uh, whether it be your back garden or your uh, farm or whatever it is, if you take that land and at the end of the year, there's more in it than when you started, then that sounds like regenerative farming to me. Um, and uh, it's farming that isn't using, it's using natural processes uh, mm -hmm. to provide everything you, you kind of need um, in terms of uh, fertility um, and food for your animals and this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I, and I, I, I sometimes question um, whether you can be regenerative and actually doing much in the way of, of cultivatable crops. Um, there are people in, um, uh, well, all the continents now, I guess, but um, I think significantly in North America uh, who are doing some amazing work with uh, no-till um, crop growing. So they have the ability to produce, uh, let's say, uh, commercial, commercial combinable crops like soy and wheat and this kind of thing uh, without cultivation and so uh, the, the the crops themselves are not contributing to climate to, to, to uh, uh, atmospheric carbon they're not providing any emissions so that that is really exciting um, we've tinkering a little bit on the edges of that here um, but we feel that uh, with our very high rainfall we, we seem to get uh, uh, on average that may change though with climate change that may well change um, that uh, we 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 think we need to farm in a way that gives us the best possible uh, use of the ecology that we've got, and I th I think this high rainfall um, at harvest time is 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 uh, kind of um, uh, nature's way of saying you know guys, uh, growing corn is perhaps not the best thing you could be doing with that land. There you go. Exactly. So in terms of your dairy farm, uh, regenerative agriculture or um, livestock raising for you looks like, um, tell me what the, what the cow's up to, what do they, they wander around and eat what's in the pasture and they help the soil with whatever, you know, you're the expert on this. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, um, uh, if we, if we think about, um, uh, uh, a plant, a, 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 a stalk of grass grow, growing out of the ground there. Mm -hmm. um, the cow comes along and eats that, that, that uh, piece of, uh, of grass. And the roots that support that grass, there's now too much root compared to the amount of, of uh, shoot there is above ground. So the root in itself is now struggling to survive and some of that root will die off um, and be consumed by bacteria and fungi and this kind of stuff which are always in the soil um, living in symbiosis almost with, with the plants in the soil as well um, and th then the, the, uh, the, the shoot begins to recover and starts to grow and as it grows uh, a lot of the photosynthate that it's producing is going down to the roots to support more root growth uh, and so on. Now, each time, each cycle you go through of the root growing, uh, sorry, the plant growing and then being eaten is essentially a little pump of carbon from the atmosphere into the soil. If you do it uh, uh, long enough, for long enough, you will actually begin to grow the volume of soil. Um, because not only does the, the relative, relative amount of organic matter in the soil increase eventually the whole depth of the soil the, the actual volume of soil you get will also increase and there are various tricks you can do to increase that along the way you know certainly in this country it's not the same in in the u.s uh, with uh, your um uh, pet prairie grasses uh, but in the uk a lot of our a lot of our grassland species are quite shallow rooting and if you um if you uh, add, start to add plants which are quite deep rooting, what happens is uh, they're going right down into the soil profile and they are taking uh, organic matter straight from the top, straight down deep into the soil. And what we've noticed with our soil is that not only is our 
soil organic matter increasing, and I can tell you it's doubled in the last uh, 10 or 12 years or so, doubled, mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, it's not just in the in the top, let's say, four inches. It's down to 12 inches and beyond that that's happening. Uh, so it, it's it's a it's a significant three-dimensional kind of effect that we're having. So um, uh, there are certainly ways that you can you can uh, boost that kind of activity. Um, now um, I said to you that we are wanting in in regenerative farming to leave uh, uh, as a farm at the end of every year uh, with a little bit more stuff in it, uh, with, you know, a, a bit more soil carbon, um, uh, uh, maybe a bit more vegetation, whatever. It's it's you're looking for for net gains in your in your ecosystem. Increase in biodiversity, uh, as well as actual uh, as, uh, bulk organic matter. And one of the ways we can do this um, really well, I think, is to start to incorporate trees in the pasture as well. And you could do this even with cropping fields uh, uh, as well. And there are some successful examples I've seen in the east of the country where they've done it very well. But um, uh, if you think of um, rather than just planting trees randomly, uh, we would uh, probably put them in straight lines. So it's, it looks a little bit mechanistic, but what it's doing is it's kind of creating um, uh, an extra dimension. Uh, in, in the, it's growing up into the up into the the air. It's uh, beginning to stack a product, if you like, on top of your grassland, and if the trees are far enough apart so you don't get a continuous canopy forming, then there'll be sufficient light coming through for the grass to grow. If you have the rows wide enough apart, you can still drive up and down with a tractor and uh, and cut hay or um, whatever you want to do with it. Um, and uh, uh, you're giving the cows a, a better dietary offer because uh, cattle uh, in prehistory were woodland animals so they're really adapted to reaching up and, and uh, uh, pulling down uh, leaves and twigs. So it's giving them a better offer um, with maybe a, a wider range of minerals and so on because the trees, they root very deeply and they can bring up all sorts of interesting things from way down in the soil profile. Um, and you can, you have the option in terms of your business, if you like, to start creating other cash flows. So uh, you could plant trees which produce nuts, for example, or trees which produce fruit, or trees which produce uh, a high-value timber. Um, so it's a it's a way of because you're stacking things on top of each other, you're you're uh, getting more out of the same acre of land. Does that make sense? It does. It sounds super interesting. I want to get my wellies on and go out in the farm right now. If I'm honest with you, I yeah, love- I, I think we need to. And and uh, I don't know about South Carolina particularly, but I'm sure if we do some investigating, you will find somewhere within a hundred miles of you there'll be someone who is really thinking about regenerative uh, uh, farming. Um, you know, I, I think I, I think largely the USA is slightly ahead of us on this. Um, interesting much much as it pains me to say that but there there, there are some really good things going on but there are really good things going on here too Um, yes and Uh, mm -hmm. you know i've just been at this this uh uh, what they call the oxford real farming conference uh which is bigger than the sort of corporate farming conference um and uh you know you, you can be in a room with a thousand people who all who are all doing things, experimenting with doing things differently, with different kinds of machinery, with different kinds of plants and animals, uh, different crops, different uh, uh, different um, uh, techniques uh, for growing things and processing things, and it, it's just uh, it's a hot house of, of innovation at the moment. And I think I think um, very largely uh, this is down to the the pressure that's being felt about climate change. Um, I don't know how farming is in, in the States, um, but also s- particularly small farmers, uh, it is increasingly difficult to make a living, you know, because uh, um, the people want to have really cheap food and to get to get the real value of what you're 
of what you're producing is very, very tough. So, you know, you better be finding ways where you can cut costs and, and uh, make things, um, uh, well, j just just uh, uh, a, a, a bit better all the time in terms of letting nature do the work for you. Some people say it's lazy farming because you're letting nature work for you. And, and I think that's what we need to do is, is to understand how, uh, understand how things like the carbon cycle work and, and how plants and animals interact together. And, and once you get a grasp of it, you can then begin to adopt new techniques, which means that you're not fighting nature the whole time. Um, and because in the last, goodness knows how many decades, we have changed farming. Uh, you know, 100 years ago, we didn't have all the, the, the easy things that we could do uh, now with chemicals and kind of thing and fertilizer and genetic modification and so on. We didn't have that. And so farming, if you go away back, was, uh, if you like, an, an exercise in applied ecology. But certainly since the Second War, it's become an exercise in applied chemistry. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, our farmers, are actually the last people to have benefited from that. The people who have really benefited are the big corporations like Monsanto, like mm -hmm. Cargill, the, 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 the big chemical companies, um, uh, the, the trading companies, the big corporates. And they've made plenty, plenty of money out of this. And um, if you graph everything out, farm incomes have actually been increasing as we've had high yields, but farm profit has been going down. And the only way that farmers have managed to stay in existence is either by taking other jobs along, uh, alongside what they do um, on the farm or by getting bigger. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm sure um, uh, if you look into I mean, do you know any American farmers, any local farmers to you? So personally, I don't. My familiarization with the well, regenerative agri agriculture movement in the U.S. is through organizations like Farmers Footprint. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. Yeah. Um, but uh, they uh, I, okay. Well, uh, what I'm going to tell you is uh, find some farmers. Do whatever it takes. Find some farmers and begin to know them. And um, uh, because... You will, even if they're complete rednecks, you'll begin to find out stuff <laughs> about why they are, what they are, and how it's come to this. And you know, we we are in. Um, I think humanity is in very very big trouble uh, because we are getting. You know, you you are a good example right there. You are very separated from where your food comes from. Yes. And th this this is not a recipe for success in the world we're moving into. Uh, so get to know a farmer. If you can get to know one that's regenerative as well, that's, that's a, a real bonus. But also, you know, uh, uh, once you begin to get to know some people in the, in the business, there are things you can begin to talk about. And uh, um, farmers generally, generally aren't really, really stupid. <laughs> um, quite stupid, but not, not really stupid. I, I, you, I'm sure you can wipe that from the, from the record. You edit that out. But, um, uh, um, it, it's c culturally, you know, we've got a culture of this, this applied chemistry world, which is now three or four generations in. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to change a culture. Yeah. We, um, uh, and we know uh, that farmers are hurting because they're going into business all the time. Yes. Um, uh, I don't know if, you, if you've got a if you've got a, a, a an ag department in your local university, in your state university, perhaps. But I'm sure that you will not be very very far away for some really good information about what's happened to farming in your state in the last in the last uh, century and half century, and even the last 25 years, and just see how things have gone. Uh, yes. I will bet you there are many many fewer people living off the land than there were uh, 50 years ago. Yeah, 100%. So, um, yeah, our state is a very, is a, the largest industry in South Carolina is agriculture. So I do have plans. Uh, I do know some local 
well, I have connections to local farmers that I'd like to interview, but something that you're talking about, I think gets the, gets the heart of it is this idea, the shift from living off the land and understanding that the land provides for us naturally in a natural way. And then moving to that chemical mm -hmm. agriculture. I think it's, um, yeah. I think that's an important mind shift to note for our entire society, even outside of agriculture yeah. that, uh, you yeah. know, the, the, our planet we survived for millions of years for a reason and it was before the chemicals and you know this idea of dominating our nature natural lands dominating our natural landscape instead of living and working in harmony with it um just has so many impacts on so many different things uh one of That's the right. one of the other projects you're involved with is the cornwall beaver project which i'd love to ask you about i did a little research regarding beavers in south carolina we do have wild beavers i see them unfortunately on the side of our roads run over all the time and in yeah. my state you're allowed to hunt them and kill them all year round which makes me very sad but I know it's different where you are because you're reintroducing beavers to the landscape. Can you talk about the Cornwall Beaver Project and uh, what sparked your interest and motivated you to get that started? Okay, well, um, there's a bunch of things. As always, you know, very little in this life uh, happens just because one thing happens. It's usually lots of things start to come together. And um, I was aware, I guess, uh, in the early 2000s that the beavers were beginning to come back to this country mm -hmm. and I uh, I was very very interested in the fact that um, in Scotland there was a place where beavers had escaped from captivity and actually begun to recolonize a whole river system um, and there have been uh, and there indeed probably are right now several hundred beaver living in this one river system so that's really exciting. Um, and they have some great champions. They have some great enemies too, but they have some great champions. And um, uh, I guess today with social media and all the rest of it, it's, it's uh, much much easier to find wacky things going on and, and who, who's doing them and so on. Um, but, uh, so I was aware that we were, get, we were getting more beavers uh, around and um, uh, I became aware that we had beavers in the next county to us. Uh, on a couple of sites um, and I thought well wouldn't it be good if we got some beavers back in Cornwall and uh, um, in 2012 we had flooding uh, in uh, our local village um, our our land drains into that area uh, and I thought okay we should we should find out uh, from the government what's uh, we should do to hold more water on our land. So we called this uh, man from the Environment Agency and he came and he had a lot of prescriptions for us, things we could do uh, to our stream to make it hold more water. And uh, I said, um, do you guys have any budget for this? You know, if we do this, can you pay us to do it? And there's no budget. Okay. Do you have, uh, if we do it, can, um, will you pay us to maintain it? Because uh, we might we might uh, hold more water, but anything we do will eventually fail. So will you pay us to maintain it? No, no budget. So then I said, could we get beavers to do it for nothing? And he said, well, I, he couldn't really comment because he works for the government, but um, yes, that would work. So from that point, we began to find out how we can get beavers back on the land. And, and uh, uh, we naively thought we could just let some go, uh, you know, get, get two or three pairs and let them go in our valley. But um, uh, we rapidly found that that would be breaking the law. Um, so we had to build an enclosure and put a pair into an enclosure, which we did eventually in 2017. And um, it has been a, an education, a real education. Yeah, the, and, video, uh, the videos look amazing. How how do the beavers play in ter in terms of the flooding? You know, I, I keep seeing that the UK is suffering from floods. Uh, we have flooding yeah. issues actually ex where we are as well. We had the flood of the millennia in 2015. Um, <laughs> so how yeah. do beavers uh, play into the natural ecosystem to help with uh, okay. flood, flood management and wetland management? Well, um, uh, this this uh, this little animal. Um, it, it is 
highly adapted to an aquatic environment. It has to have water. And it has to have water that's, um, let's say, two to three feet deep as a minimum uh, for it to do the stuff it needs to do, especially to build a lodge with, a, with an underwater entrance, which is its main defense of its lodge against predators. Okay. So if you've got a, um, a nice big river like the Mississippi in, I don't know, uh, somewhere in Tennessee or something, uh, it doesn't need to dig uh, to build a dam or anything because uh, it's an enormous river, uh, it's deep and it's wide, and they can just drill a hole into the bank underwater and they've got somewhere they can stay. So um, the magic doesn't really happen there. The beavers are around and they're, they're kind of cool, but uh, it, 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 there's no real magic happening. Now, when you get into the headwaters of a system where the streams are smaller uh, than that, that cannot support this concealed entrance to a lodge, they build dams. And that dam building um, uh, essentially holds water. That's pretty obvious, really, I suppose. <laughs> and they don't just build a dam and live in that. They will build a series of dams. And as their population increases, um, there will be more and more and more dams. And this has the effect of uh, um, wetting the soil, um, Imagine that they're, they're, where there's no water before uh, or just a very shallow stream, they're now building up uh, uh, three feet or six feet of water. That is now creating a pressure which will begin to get it into the soil physically, but also laterally as well. They create wetland um, and uh, they make the streams branch. Um, so so that's, that's how they begin to uh, hold uh, a lot more water upstream and it acts it acts like a, a series of baffles you know where we, we have them on a five acre site there's 200 meters of stream here and they have created out of that stream uh, they've built eight dams and there are now one two three four five considerable ponds one of them very big that started life as a small pond is now a very big one and the other one where the other ones where there was no pond at all. So this land, if you like, uh, has been turned into a big uh, sponge. It's a buffer um, uh, against heavy rain. So, and we've got uh, a lot of um, uh, instruments and so on in the water, which, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, hydrology instruments, which, uh, measure the water every five minutes, the water depth and the water temperature and how cloudy it is and a, and a rain gauge as well. So you can see in real time when it starts raining, uh, the level of the stream entering the site begins to come up. And then when it stops raining, that, that level going down. And you can see it at the exit to the site as well. And so the water going into the site is always a very steep, sharp peak. It's the, the stream is very, very re reactive there. But below the site, it is not like that anymore. Uh, you, you still get a peak, but it's a much, much lower peak, and it's really spread out. So it's almost like a, a water plateau moving through, and it's delayed by all these dams going through in just 200 meters. So uh, what it means is at the point where the flood is happening, the contribution that's coming from there is arriving later, and it's lower. So uh, if you like, our little our little stream is now uh, not working so hard to, to create a flood in my neighbor's house. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, it's it's very interesting. It's um I can imagine though um, that the beavers doing this 
maybe some people see that as an infringement on their land. Have you dealt with backlash from people? Like, for example, here in South Carolina, I know there are farmers that consider beavers pests instead of trying to maybe yeah. figure out a way to live with them naturally. So there has to be pros yeah. and cons of both. How have you experienced that locally? And what would you say to uh, farmers or landowners that see this sort of wetland creation okay. as a nuisance? <laughs> Yeah, um, um, I recognise that beavers have impacts. They um, create local flooding. They cut down trees. These impacts, while they are uh, definite impacts if they're in a place that doesn't matter very much they are incredibly beneficial to what, what uh, to everything else to people who live downstream and also to wildlife and the hydrology cycle and all those things so um, uh, but also those impacts are really easily managed so for example if uh, if you have some trees um, close to the water because they tend not to come out much more than about 20 or 30 meters from the water anyway but if you have so if you have some uh, let's say i don't know some special fruit trees that you want to preserve in your garden all you have to do is take some um some glue or some paint mix it with uh, some sand maybe a little chili pepper if you're really uh crazy and, and it, uh, just paint it onto the tree and then the beaver won't eat it won't try and cut that tree down because it's not nice trying to bite through sand mm -hmm. um, if you have uh, let's say again it's your garden and uh, the beavers set up there and uh, the water level starts coming up and you think oh Jesus I'm gonna have water at my back door uh, uh, you can very easily by taking a pipe and putting it through the dam um, and putting a mesh around one end so the beavers can't block it up. You can control the um, um, the level to which the dam get to which the pond gets to. So um, it, you, you know these impacts are, uh, are are manageable. Now, what I would like to do is to refer you to a guy called Mike Callahan, mm -hmm. um, who you can find by a, a uh, a brisk search of the interweb and uh, this guy he has made a career out of uh, what some people call the deceivers um, equipment which prevents the flooding of land if you like mm -hmm. um, because you know even in the USA which is relatively speaking enormous and less densely populated than we are here uh there's still lots and lots of people and um inevitably uh beavers will create conflicts with people but you, you know you, you you shouldn't underestimate how strong the pro beaver lobby is i know there are plenty of people anti as well but there's a very strong pro beaver lobby and there are a lot of people who are really campaigning hard for, for better treatment and better understanding and i think it's amazing it's understanding this animal um and uh, there's a fabulous film by um, an American woman called Sarah Koenigsberg called Beaver Believers. And I would really recommend you watch it. Um, I should put some, some links and things on here for you to get a hold of some of these people. But there's, there's a lot going on. And, um, you know, I think what we're finding out about these, these, these animals is that they are, in a very, very real sense, a keystone species. Everyone's talking about this keystone species, that keystone species, the other keystone species. There are actually very, very few actual serious keystone species, but this is one of them. And the reason it is, is because where uh, you have a, a, a stream flowing fast, if you stop that flow, for a start, it will begin to accumulate sediment. But also, as the water slows down, it will begin 
to produce algae. And algae is the bottom of every food chain that I can think of. Mm-hmm. And suddenly there's a lot of algae, so you can uh, you very quickly produce lots of little critters that eat algae. You know, it's microscopic things, single-celled things. And then lots of things which are a little bit bigger than that. And before you know where you are, you've got uh, uh, fish getting bigger and fatter because there's so much to eat, and things that eat fish getting bigger and fatter, like ospreys and bald eagles and uh, herons, otters, all of these things. You just have, you have a, an enormous boost in the, um, uh, in the biodiversity. And uh, it's because of this animal and the action that it takes. I would recommend a book to you uh, by a man called Eric Collier uh, called Three Against the Wilderness. Now, this guy was a trapper in Canada in the uh, 20th century, um, in the middle of the 20th century, and he talks about the effect of bringing beavers back to a part of British Columbia where they've been made extinct during the trapping days. And um, uh, it is astounding to see the level of understanding that this man has of, of, of what the beavers are doing. And, uh, and the effect, indeed, of actually bringing them back there, um, m- most extraordinary. Uh, I mean, I-, I can understand, I can understand people not wanting to have their garden flooded or their house flooded, but we can get, we can sort that out. Uh, I also know um, uh, ranchers uh, in uh, Utah and in uh, Wyoming, in particular, uh, who have said to me that their farms, their ranches have been saved by beavers mm. because uh, where you get beavers, you begin to get uh, a water uh, that previously might have even been just seasonal, uh, but you get water being held in the landscape. Water tables rise, vegetation starts to come back and you get green vegetation all year round. And then um, ranchers, they like cows, and cows like green vegetation. And suddenly, uh, there's um, in a lot of cases when this sort of light going off, light bulb going off, and they're saying, "Hang on, these animals are important." Um, I, I would uh, recommend to you a, 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 an environmental journalist in the states called Ben Goldfarb, and Ben has recently uh, written a book uh, called Eager: uh, The Story of Beavers and Why They Matter, and um, uh, there's a lot of very current work being exposed, and in fact, Mike Callan's in there, and all, all sorts of people. And and um, this is this this is something that needs to be back. I understand there's about uh, 10 to 15 million beavers in the states at the moment. Um, in North America, in say 1600, when uh, white people started showing up and wrecking everything. Um, there were maybe 400 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these animals, um, where they've been for millennia, uh, had created the most incredible soil in valleys because they were catching sediment that otherwise would have ended up in the, the uh, Gulf of Mexico was being, was being uh, caught. Um, and uh, uh, dams over millennia were slowly filling up with this, with this uh, extraordinary sediment. And they ended up with really very, very fertile soil there. And once the beavers are gone, uh, it was pretty easy just to take it over, you know, clear it and farm it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, go on. Yeah, it's, it's again, it, I just feel like uh, we're coming back to this overarching theme of man trying to dominate the land, right? We're trying to make it the, what we want it to. We want to put fences around it and make it square. And we want to, you know, give it the inputs that we want to give it when in reality, if we let nature do what it needs to do, it provides it for itself. And um, well, uh, 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 very often, I mean, I, 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 uh, I do recognize that fences have a function. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> we shouldn't ignore. Um, no, uh, uh, there, there are, you know, there, there, there are things out there in nature which are just a pain in the ass uh, uh, and, and, and can cause you real problems. But um, mostly, mostly, if we sit back and just observe what's going on and learn from that, we can, uh, we can um, 
run a satisfactory kind of operating. Um, what I would say is just going back to the food thing, what my sort of favorite soundbite that I've come up with um, in the last couple of years is, you know, that the food we eat, that should be a byproduct of a really sound ecology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it isn't, we're going to be starting to wear, wear out the environment. And, and I mean, really, that's where we are. Um, we, we have uh, done a lot of damage. Um, yeah. So, so what? So, Chris, how, what do you envision for the future of beavers and farming and this environmentalist movement? What are your hopes? Well, um, I um, I think we're going to see government begin to accept that the beavers are a force for good, on the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope if they do that, they will also accept that um, there has to be some kind of uh, management um, structure in place, uh, because otherwise, you know, if there is a management structure, then landowners, people who are have have a, let's say conflict with beavers, they will take the law into their own hands, and and that would be a pity. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we we, we it's, it's not just a, a thing of saying, "Oh, they're they're nice fluffy animals." We need to accept that they they do cause conflicts, and that we should be prepared to um, uh, control them when we have to. Um, but I also think that we need to be uh, rapidly increasing the range of them over, over this country. Because I think there's a lot of places in rural Britain which have uh, uh, flooding issues which we can reduce dramatically. And we've done some calculations and we think we could get beavers back here across the nation um, in the thousands um, for about 1% of what the government spends on flooding. Sorry, about half of 1% of what the the, the government uh, spends on uh, flooding every year or flood prevention. So, um, and if we can say knock off 10% of the, of the, of the, of the risk by spending half a percent of the money, that seems like a pretty good, pretty good deal to me. Yeah. Um, so, so I just, I, I just hope that we, you know, my vision, if you like, is that, is that, um, uh, government gets a bit braver than it has been, uh, a little bit less risk averse. And say, yeah, yeah, take a punt and say, let's get these animals back. It's not like getting wolves or bears back. You know, they don't eat your children. Uh, yeah. They don't eat fish. They don't compete with us, uh, really. And um, I, I think we should uh, we should be embracing them. Um, as for as for farming, well, I I I think that um, you know we we get the we get the um, the charge against us sometimes that. Uh, Regenerative farming is not going to feed uh, 8 billion people or 10 billion people or, or whatever it is. Um, and I guess my reply to that is, well, if regenerative farming isn't going to, for sure chemical farming isn't going to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I just think we've, we've got to grasp this and, um, and start to work on it seriously you know, on, on a big scale. Um, and um, maybe when we look forward, how we're going to make that work, um, I think when we begin to realize that uh, you can't eat money, mm-hmm. or you can, but it doesn't taste, and it doesn't sustain uh, you. Um, you know, we, we, need, uh, we need to be producing a, a food that is fit for people. You will know, I'm sure, that... Um, this world of ours, uh, the, the global north, is awash with calories. We are growing crops just to put straight into uh, refineries to produce biofuel, you know, ethanol or, or biodiesel. Mm-hmm. We're producing cop- crops to put into di- digesters to produce gas. You know, this is crazy. This is mad. We, you know, what the hell is the matter with us? Mm-hmm. Um, um, because the, you know, the, the carbon footprint of actually doing uh, growing all that stuff is nearly as great, if not greater, than the than the energy we're getting back. Why are we doing it? You know, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we uh, we have to we've got to change the way we view uh, our planet. Or you know, um, uh, I'm okay. I, I, I'm going to die before things get really, really, really bad. But uh, I wouldn't give much for your children's chances mm-hmm. or mine. You know, uh, um, and and this is this is serious stuff. You just got to look at Australia. Yeah. You know, they, they, they've been having fires there. You know, they're, they're, there were big fires in California the last couple of years. They are nothing compared to what's happening in Australia. Nothing. Mm-hmm. They might, you know, that what happened in, in California might have cost a lot of money and, and made a few, uh, made a few um, uh, movie stars um, move out of their houses and so on. But uh, it's nothing. Just nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I know people in, in uh, that part of Australia who were just told, yes, the, the police just came and said, go, go now. You haven't got time to pack anything. Just get in your car and drive. Go. Uh, and they've lost everything. And it's not just one or two. This is whole towns um, over and over and over. So I think there, there are pretty clear warnings there that we have got to get our act together. And um, it's, uh, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. It, it's, it's a very simple prospect, but it's not easy. Because um, we shouldn't confuse simple with being easy at all. But uh, you know, we we have got to change. True, I agree with what you're saying. And final question: What advice would you give someone who's just now waking up to the climate crisis? Um, um, that is a that is a very very good question. I guess I'd be asking. Uh, I, I would be, I'll be telling them, uh, meet other people who are coming or have come to the same realization. Uh, try to get a, a grip of what your uh, impacts are and how you can start to reduce those. And this is very hard for us in the West. The real cause of the climate crisis, the real cause of, of, of emissions isn't cows or growing wheat or any of those things that we've been talking about. The real cause is burning fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. So you need to learn how to localize your life. You know, if you have to drive uh, uh, 20 miles a day to get to work, you need to either move next to your work or change your job. You know, you, 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 there's no two ways, but you cannot go on as we are. Um, so you, you le- learn who else around you gets it and get with them and work together to change the way you live. There you go. That's, that is great advice. And I hope uh, one of my goals for doing these interviews is to try and connect people locally and then also across the world so that people understand that they're not alone in this realization and that there are people like yourself who are doing things actively to try and improve the situation and that we all have our own personal individual responsibilities that we can do but it's going to take a sort of communal effort for us to tackle the biggest crisis in humanity most likely so um I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and I want to go out and find out more about beavers for sure. And I'm excited to be growing more stuff in our backyard and hopefully regeneratively, although we are already organic in our, in our garden, but um, I'm interested to learn about the regenerative aspect of it. So. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that, that all sounds um, amazing. Fiona, and uh, I would be very pleased if you can start taking some just sort of two minute movies and getting it up on YouTube so we can see where you're starting from yeah, and where you're going to end up. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Definitely. So my course starts on January 22nd. <laughs> so I have time yeah. to, to do a little recording of what our back garden looks like now. Um, and we'll have to see if my husband will either give me some of our beds or if I have to start my own beds. <laughs> He's a little bit protective of the, of the stuff that we grow right now. He's really the, the farmer in our house. So but I'll be interested yeah. to see what happens yeah. for sure. Okay. And um, uh, have you grasped permaculture? 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, we don't. Okay. Uh, I call our front our front flower bed permaculture. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, um, uh, you you can never go wrong with. I think fruit trees are the most amazing things. Um, you know that sort of edible landscape. Yes. Uh, We've done that. Actually, we just invested in um, four fruit trees for our front yard. Our front yard gets the most sun, so anything that's being planted yeah. in the front yard is edible from, yeah. from this point onwards. So we have some yeah. uh, some trees planted and hoping for fruit in the next two years. It's going to take a little while, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But also, the other thing to do is get out there uh, and whatever it takes, start to get to know some farmers. Yes, I agree. I will be on that. Okay, okay, Chris, I appreciate your time. Uh, I will be following you um, with everything that you're doing. And um, it would be great if you could send links to some of the resources that you mentioned. I wrote some of them down. Yeah. I'd be more yeah. than happy well, to share those links with, uh, with our audience yeah. so that they can follow up on that. As yeah. Well. Yeah. Um, uh, something which uh, I just wanted to mention, which is uh, just recently started, but I've been involved with a group uh, of uh, people who, who have started up something called the Beaver Trust, okay. and Beaver Trust is currently is uh, is um, just in the UK. But as it happens, uh, we uh, as a group have been having conversations with um, uh, people in the USA, and I think one of our people will be opening the Beaver Conference this year in Baltimore, and um, will be. Uh, working with uh, uh, all sorts of organizations in the U.S. and uh, ideally with the hope of starting up uh, uh, like a, a U.S. Um, version of the Beaver Trust or indeed maybe something like Beavers Beyond Borders or Beavers Without Borders. So, yeah. Because this, this, this app has got something for, for all of us and uh, um, we need to be talking about them a lot more, learning about them and getting them. Yes. All for the beavers. All right, Chris, I appreciate yeah. it. Okay. Have a wonderful um, rest of your evening, and um, I appreciate your time, and I will be following you, and we'll speak sometime later. Thank you. Thank you, Jenna. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.